Amen. Let's, I don't know. I don't even know anymore. Let's give the Lord a hand. It's always exciting for me when we see God adding to our church, um, not because we you know, are interested in how many seats we can put out on a Sunday morning, even though Charlie does it really well, but that it means that our capacity as a church has increased. Every deposit in here comes in the form of people. We are the church. It's not one individual. It's not an institution. It's not a building. It certainly isn't a particular gift. It's all of us together serving the Lord faithfully and allowing Him to do what He wants to do in all of our lives. And so, yeah, I'm always excited when God adds people because I know that our capacity, our influence, and our reach is about to increase. So welcome, Sims family. We're so excited that you guys have decided to be a part of this church. So I'm sure many of you uh, may know this. Mark already didn't know who I was when I stood up here. But uh, I have been out of town for the last couple of weeks. Uh, I did miss spending Easter with all of you. It was uh, a beautiful service. I watched it online, Good Friday. And I did miss this church family, but I did have the privilege of going back to South Africa and seeing my mom one last time before she passed. And I just wanted to take this opportunity real quick just to thank some people as a result of that. I want to first of all thank my wife for being so amazing and for pushing me onto the plane literally um, and telling me to go when it was time. And so I wouldn't have done it without her. And I thank her for serving our family so well in this community. I want to thank the eldership team. Charlie and Mark, uh, as well as your wives, Crystal and Patty, for allowing me to go and for standing in so well for me. I want to thank all the staff who was here and just shouldered the burden of what was our biggest Easter celebration we've ever had in the history of this church, and they did that without even skipping a beat. I want to thank all the deacons and volunteers for all of your support and for jumping in wherever you're needed. I want to thank all of you who prayed for my mom in particular and for my family, and I want to encourage us all that even though she's not with us today, I know that she is with the Lord in glory. Amen. On behalf of Kat, myself, and the kids, uh, I do want to thank you for your messages, all those text messages we got, the support, the love, and just all the prayers. Man, I can't tell you how much it encouraged both me here, or me in South Africa, my family here, but also my extended family in South Africa. You guys are awesome. And then lastly, both Mark and Charlie, thank you for doing an amazing job in preaching such a powerful message on both Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And for helping us remember that the reason we gather on a Sunday morning, the reason we gather as a church, the reason we belong to this church is for one person and one person alone, and his name is Jesus. It's a privilege for me to be a part of this local church family, and I do consider it that. I consider it as a family, and so thank you to all of you. I really, really do, from the bottom of my heart, just want to say how much I appreciate all of you. We love you, Mark. Love you, Mark. Well, with that out the way, this morning, we're back in our Revelation series, so... I hope you're excited. Um, Mark and Charlie get to do the cool stuff. <laughs> Just kidding. So we, we're back in the section that was dealing with the seven visions of victory. It's the penultimate section found in the book of Revelation. There's only one more after this. Uh, we see the fulfillment of God's plan in this section, the redemption of humanity, the salvation of His people, and importantly, the sort of glorification of the church. The church is rising to power in this season because God is empowering us. And so far in this section, we've covered three main visions. The first vision was that of the rider on the white horse. You remember that guy he comes riding in, and when I say that guy, I mean Jesus. 
And what it indicated to us is that our king is a conquering king. He has been conquering, is conquering, and will continue to conquer. He's the same rider that we first saw introduced to us, at least I believe, in the seven seals. The rider who brought the gospel message to the world. And since then, he's been advancing with this message and defeating his enemies along the way. We saw that this rider on the white horse has some names. His name is Faithful and True. No matter how faithless you are this morning, no matter how faithless you may feel in your circumstances, we serve a God. His name is Jesus, and He is always faithful. What's more, He is always true. What He says He's going to do in our lives, for our lives, and the promises He gives us in Scripture are yes and amen. That's the God that we serve. His name is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will always reign. He will always rule, and there is no one and nothing that can ever unseat him from his throne. That's the king that we serve this morning. Let's give him a hand. The second and third visions jumped forward in time to a place that was sort of after the end of everything. Well, not the end of everything, just before the end of everything, but after this great big battle called Armageddon. It dealt with the destruction of three of God's great enemies. One of them is a group of people. It's the kings, the captains, the mighty men, the horses, both young and old, slave and free, all of the people on this earth who have in their own hearts set themselves against and in opposition to God, they will be defeated. We also saw that the beast of the sea, the beast that represents nations, governments, institutions, people that are against the kingdom of God, that persecute believers, that have been persecuting believers, are persecuting believers today and may persecutors persecute believers in the future will also be dealt with. And then we saw the beast of the land, the beast that looks like a lamb representing false religion, in particular, I believe more so a false type of Christianity, a counterfeit gospel that wants us to believe that everything that matters in our lives as believers is about us. We don't live to serve ourselves. We live to serve our king. That particular gospel will be defeated once and for all by the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All of this destruction, which was pretty macabre, if I'm brutally honest with you, was pictured as this great supper, a supper where all of these ravens and vultures are invited to feast on the dead and decaying corpses. But as macabre as it was, there are some things that we learn from the great supper. Firstly, there is only one name under heaven by which man can be saved. Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, right after Peter's preached at Pentecost, 3,000 people have been added to the church. They get hauled in before the council in Jerusalem. And Peter says this, he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And what that tells us this morning and what the Great Supper taught us is that there is nobody on this earth who rejects Jesus Christ who will not unfortunately have to face the consequences of that decision. <laughs> It also told us and showed us that there is no power or principality on this earth, no matter how big it is, no matter how big that mountain may seem in your life, no matter how indestructible it may look, no matter how distant it is away from us, no matter how hidden it may be, that will not be defeated by our King. Amen. And that brings us to this morning where we're going to cover the fourth and the fifth visions. And we're going to be exposed to God's plan on how the final enemy, our great adversary, the one who has been deceiving the nations since as long as we can remember for sure, but from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, Satan himself will be destroyed. Amen. That's exciting, guys, in case you're wondering. You're allowed to get excited here. But before we, before we get to it, I do want to remind us how 
when I started this section, I did sort of, you know, give you some terms and conditions. You know, those, you know, like those ads, they always want you to buy things and there's always terms and conditions apply. Well, the terms and conditions that I laid out for us at the beginning of this section is that this can be quite a controversial section in Revelation. And the reason it's controversial or can be controversial or doesn't have to be controversial is because it does deal with some things where matters of interpretation become quite different. And so some people will find that as an opportunity to, vi- to divide over, to fight over. But what I want to remind us this morning is this book, the book of Revelation, was given to us by God not to divide the church. It was, yet, it was given to us to encourage us. And so I want to say this to you this morning, that if you differ with the way I choose to interpret Revelation, it's okay. Believe me, it's fine. In fact, one thing we can all be certain of, and Ron reminded me of it the other day, I think it was Ron, I'm not sure actually, now I can't remember, but maybe it was Ron, is that all of us can be considered to be pan-millennialists because everything's going to pan out in the end, right? Because Jesus will come back and everyone will go to heaven, right? That's a believer. So that's the good news. But unfortunately, as we unpack Scripture, especially exegetically, we have to put our sort of line in the sand and say, this is what I believe it to say. So don't fight with me. We can disagree on certain things. We can agree on others. But the fundamental truth is Jesus is coming back. He will win. And we as his church, as his people, are victorious today and not defeated. That's the fact that we have to agree on. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to read from verse 1 to 10 this morning. If you don't know where Revelation is, let's just go to the back of the Bible. Flip back about three or four pages and you'll be probably at Revelations 20. We're right at the end of the Bible. We're going to go through 10 verses. Uh, We'll unpack them as we go, but can we bow our heads and pray first? Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the privilege of hearing your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would not just be hearers of your word today, but that it would take root in our heart and we would become doers of your word. I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest upon us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll move mightily amongst us. And I pray that you'd quicken our hearts this morning with the message that you want us to hear, Lord. I pray, Lord, that even in this morning, we would experience something of your revival break out in our hearts. And I trust with this, Lord, today in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these 10 verses, there are three main sections. We're going to cover them individually. The first section runs from verse 1 of chapter 20 to verse 3, and it deals with this concept of the millennium and here what the millennium looks like on this earth. Then from chapters 4 to 6, it deals with the millennium in heaven, and we'll look at that. And then the last section, which is section 3, which runs from verse 7 to verse 10, sort of brings those two sections, the millennium on earth and the millennium in heaven, together as we look at the defeat of the great adversary, Satan. And like all the other visions that we've seen in this section, and even some of the sections or the visions that we've seen in other sections, these visions happen at different points in the timeline. What I mean by that is the last time when we looked at the Great Supper, we went right towards the end of time. Well, in these visions, we're going to go back in time a little bit, only to go forward again. In fact, I believe that the vision that we are going to discuss this morning started about 2,000 years ago. It continues to this day. And then we're going to jump forward and see what's going to end up happening to Satan in the future. They're not happening chronologically. That's the point I'm trying to get at. And it's much easier to understand Revelations when we look at it as the spiral staircase. One event, the plan of God for this earth, for you and for I, our names were written on for I, for me, our names were written on his heart. And what he's showing us is how he's going to bring us back to eternal glory with him. We're just seeing this thing happen from different points. So let's look at the fourth vision, the millennium here on this earth. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1 
It says, Then I saw an angel coming down. This is John speaking from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, there's a lot of symbology in this verse. I don't believe personally, in my view of interpreting this particular passage and revelation, that this is necessarily meant to be read literally. There's highly symbolic language that I believe is being used. In other words, I don't think there's a giant chain in heaven that's going to come down to earth. Now, I don't say that disparagingly, but there is something that this symbology teaches us. And there's three things that we see in this verse immediately. The first is that this angel is coming down. He's not going up to heaven, he's coming from heaven to this earth. John sees this happening from his heavenly vantage point. He sees the angel move from heaven to this earth. That tells us that whatever is about to transpire in this particular vision has got nothing to do with the heavenly realm where God and the angels and the saints live today. It has to do with matters that are beneath heaven. In Scripture, there are three realms of existence. There is heaven, where God dwells. The throne of God exists today. It is the center of the universe. It is the place where Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now. And then we have the earth, the place where we all live. But there's another place. There's a place that exists beneath the earth. And that's what we notice, is that this angel has a key. And the key that he has is to a thing called the bottomless pit. In the Greek, the word bottomless pit is one word, and it's directly translated to the word abyss. In Roman mythology, they believed that the abyss was the place that was completely kept aside for all the dead people to be stored, as well as, in particular, demons to be held. It was a place called Orcus. In the Greek, it's Tartarus. In other translations, you'll read the word Hades, but this is a place of confinement. It's a place where people are stuck. It's a place where all the evil forces in this world are constrained by God. They are restrained in a sense. Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says this in verse 18 and 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Just understand that this morning. No matter what sin you're caught up in today, no matter how bad your life is, Jesus Christ's righteousness is far greater than any sin you've ever committed in your life because he is perfect and he is God. He gave us his righteousness in exchange for our sin that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And here's the verse, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So there's something that happens at the crucifixion. I can't explain to you what it is. I wasn't there. But one day when I get to heaven, I really want to see what actually happened. But the sense is that Jesus on the cross in his crucifixion goes and reminds the enemy and all the enemies of him that he has the victory, that he's large and he's in charge. This particular concept is echoed in other New Testament scriptures as well, like the book of Jude, for example, or in other extra biblical texts too. It's the same pit that we encountered in the seven trumpets. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 9, where Satan is cast from heaven? Remember, Satan in Revelation started off in heaven. He was an angel. He gets cast out of heaven. Where does he get cast to? He gets cast to the earth. So his dominion is no longer in heaven. He cannot rule and reign with God. He doesn't have the power to be in the presence of God anymore. He gets cast down to this earth. And what does he do? He's given a key. He unlocks the bottomless pit. And these weird locust scorpion things come out and start to torment humanity. It's the same pit that we encountered in Revelation chapter 11 when we saw the two witnesses, we'll talk about them a bit later, who were, who were ultimately defeated by the beast from the bottomless pit. We are familiar with this concept of this place of restraint and where these beings are kept. 
Verse 2 goes on to tell us exactly what in this context is being restrained. Up to this point, we've seen a lot of things being restrained. We've seen a lot of things being defeated. But now it says this, And he, speaking of the angel, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Satan is being restrained. He is being constrained. Now before we get to the details of exactly what that means for us today, I want us to spend a little bit of time this morning just thinking about the, the enemy or Satan's character. John goes to great lengths in this verse to tell us just who this enemy is. He uses four words. He says, first of all, he's the dragon. See, Satan likes to drive fear into people's hearts. When you were a kid and you thought about dragons, they were fearful creatures. Satan loves to terrorize us. That's what Satan does. He wants to bring terror to us as God's people. He uses the word um, serpent. Serpent speaks of the enemy's ability to deceive people. Now, snakes in and of themselves are not deceptive beings. They are hunters for sure, but they do hide away pretty good. And so when Satan comes and he deceives us and he lies to us, what he often does is he hides behind other things. He brings those accusations against us and it almost looks as if the accusations are coming from another place. Like for example, if you get into a fight with your spouse, or your mother, or your father, you think they're the enemy, but perhaps Satan is actually behind it all and he's the one that's deceiving everyone. He says that Satan is also the devil. That word means slanderer. In other words, somebody who speaks ill of somebody else or even speaks ill about you. Somebody who tells you things about yourself that you don't really want to know. Maybe you know them about yourself, but he reminds you of all your faults, all your failures. And then he tells you about everybody else's faults and failures too, so that you don't feel so bad. right? And then you can go and tell everybody about all of their problems too. That's the enemy, friends. The last word that he uses is the word Satan, which means adversary. That's the accuser of the brethren. The reason I'm highlighting this and laboring it this morning is I don't know about you, and it probably doesn't happen to anybody else in this church, I get that, but often in my life, especially in moments where I'm in a very bad spot or perhaps I'm at a low moment in my life like this past week, the enemy will come into my life and he'll start to tell me things. He'll start to say things to me like, do you know that God's actually disappointed in you? Do you know that God is never going to be happy with what you do because you never do anything right for him? He'll tell me other things. He'll say to me that you're not good enough, that nobody loves you. He'll tell you that you don't do enough things for God and for His kingdom. How can you be doing what it is that you're doing? I know none of you have ever experienced this, but perhaps somebody in this room has experienced something of this. And if that's you this morning, I want to remind you of something. We so often think that that's God. Sometimes we hear these voices and we think, oh my gosh, God's unhappy with me. God is telling me something. I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit does not terrorize. The Holy Spirit, when He comes upon us, does not bring fear into your hearts. If you want to identify the voice of the enemy and the voice of God, find out if you're scared. If you're scared, it's not God. If you have fear, if there's a hole in your stomach or a pit, it is not God, friends. The Holy Spirit, when He comes to us, He does not slander us, friends. He may convict us, but it's not slander. He doesn't beat us down and tell us how terrible we are. 
Satan doesn't come, I mean, the Holy Spirit doesn't come in our lives to bring us down and to accuse us. What he does is he empowers us to become people that God wants us to become. There is life in the Holy Spirit. There is death in the enemy's words. And I'm reminding us of this this morning because here's the deal. Perhaps it's time that we as a church stop listening to the voice of the enemy and we start listening to the voice of God. And so when Satan tells you that you are a sinner because you sin, you say to him, no, Satan, I'm a saint declared righteous by Jesus. That's what the Bible tells me. And even though I do sin, you know what I'm being transformed from one degree of glory to the next that's what we tell him when he tells you that you are the sum total of what you do for God you say it's not about what I do for God it's about what Jesus did for me on the cross or when he tells you this and he says you are about what everyone thinks you are what everyone says you are that's who you are I say it doesn't actually matter Satan what people think of me the only person that matters is what Jesus says of me I'm a son, a king, a victor, more than a conqueror. We need to get better, friends, at disarming the enemy. (sighs) Sorry. Verse 2, And he seized the dragon and the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So this is where interpretations start to get a little bit divergent. So premillennialists, and I'm not knocking any view on end times theology, but let me just explain to you what the differences are. Premillennialists believe that Jesus is coming before this millennium that's mentioned here, this thousand year reign. And so Jesus will come in Revelations 19, the ride on the white horse. They believe that to be the second coming of Jesus. He will set up his earthly kingdom on this earth and we will rule and reign with him. That's the premillennial view. A millennialist, or no, let's get to that last. Post-millennialists believe that Jesus will come after this thousand years. Now, I know this is quite boring for a lot of us, but post-millennials believe ultimately that this millennium that we're going into is not inaugurated by Jesus on this earth, but it is something that happens when Satan is bound. They believe that there's going to come this golden era where sin will no longer exist in this world because Satan is bound and that things on earth will just get better and better and better and before we know it, Jesus will come back when everything is 100% perfect. I find a lot of challenges with that particular view myself because I don't think as long as human beings exist on this earth it will ever be perfect. Then there is a third view, and this is the view that I hold to, and it's called the amillennial view, and I just don't like that statement because amillennial means that we don't believe in the millennium. That's what the letter A in front of the word millennium means. I prefer to call this gospel age millennialists, and so let me explain to you what that means. You see, I believe there is a millennium. I don't believe that it's a literal thousand-year period. I do believe it's an epoch of time. Like much of the numbers in Revelation, it's a symbolic number. It means a really long time. It's an epoch that we're living in. I believe it symbolizes the moment when Jesus first came to this earth, where he died the death that we should have died on the cross, where he was resurrected and ultimately was ascended into heaven, and it will will end when he comes back to this earth to rule and to reign. Put another way, I believe that on that first Easter weekend, something that you all celebrated in this church last week Sunday and everyone in this world celebrated, I believe on that Easter weekend, Satan and all of his evil minions met their match. It's what we see in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. And I saw one like the Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a kingdom and a dominion and authority, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what happened when Jesus was crucified on the cross. He went up and received the glory that was his. He started to inaugurate this millennium. It's the same thing that happens when the rider and the white horse and the seven seals comes advancing forward. And what is he bringing with him? The gospel message. Unfortunately, the gospel is followed by persecution. And that's something we'll talk about today. It was in that moment that I believe that Satan was bound. 
I believe that he is bound. And I believe that he will continue to be bound. But here's the deal. The rider on the white horse is not done yet. But there is a truth that we can take out of this. And that is this, that Satan in your life is bound, has been bound, and will continue to be bound. Now you might be thinking to yourself, but Marco, how can you honestly believe that? I mean, how can you believe that? I just mentioned to you how the enemy comes and lies to us, how he deceives us, right? So how can he be bound if he's still here deceiving humanity? Or how can you tell me Satan is bound when we just have to walk up the, re- up the street here and realize how messed up and how evil the world is that we live in today? How can you say Satan has been bound? Well, let me tell you, friends, I do believe he's bound. And it's not just something we read in Revelation. It's something that is echoed throughout the New Testament. The problem is we have the wrong perspective or understanding of what being bound means. Let me read some scripture to you. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10 says this, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, listen to this word, who abolished death. Notice this is present tense, not will abolish death, has abolished death. Do people still die? Yes, they do. Believe me, I, was, I just was at a funeral this week. People still die. However, eternal death is not on the table anymore for believers. Death has been defeated at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel is the answer, friends. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. Jesus became flesh for us. God himself incarnated in the flesh, took our sins upon him, died on the cross. That through the death he died, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Did you hear that word? He destroyed the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I want you to look at the person sitting next to you and tell them that because of what Jesus did on the cross, they have been delivered from lifelong slavery. You can do that. See, we don't live like that, friends. We are slaves, friends. And I want to tell you, that's the biggest deception the enemy has. He keeps us enslaved in our minds. But I want to tell you, friends, you have been delivered from lifelong slavery because of what Jesus did on the cross. We have to believe it and we have to receive it this morning. What about this? Colossians 2 verse 14 and 15. By canceling the record of debt. Jesus canceled your debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Do you know that the crucifixion was a legal act? It wasn't some social justice exercise where somebody could stand up and just do something that would get people's attention. It was a legal demand placed on humanity that we should have paid, but that Jesus paid for us instead. And then it says this, he nailed this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, say disarmed. Say Satan has been disarmed. Hallelujah. The rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame. He made a public spectacle of the devil by triumphing over him. All of these verses, friends, are present tense. This is what Jesus has done, not will do someday, but has done right now. The question is, do we live like that? We don't, honestly. I struggle all the time. Maybe I don't. Maybe you do. But notice what Satan What happened to Satan? He was destroyed, he was disarmed, and he was put to open shame. See, that's what the binding of Satan means. The binding of Satan means that Satan has no authority over a believer's life. He has no longer got any dominion in our lives. 
It doesn't mean that people won't get tempted by him, deceived by him, but it means that when he comes, we can remind him of who he is, that he is defeated. And if you don't think that Satan's bound, can you imagine what it must have been to live like on this earth before Jesus came? None of us can do that because we weren't there, right? But just imagine what it was like for the church before. In fact, it wasn't the church yet, but for people on this earth without the Holy Spirit. Do you know that as a believer today, you will never know what it's like to live without the Holy Spirit. Good. We have the Holy Spirit in us. It dwells inside of us. And, and, and we still struggle. Can you imagine how dark the world must have been before that? Set the nation of Israel aside. Let me tell you what the world looked like before Jesus. Humanity had no way of fighting guilt. It had no way of overcoming shame. And it had no way of ever knowing that there would ever be able to be another life after death. There was no certainty in life. There was no hope in life. And so what did people do? They became superstitious. They started to turn to all sorts of things, hoping that something would fill the void in their heart and give them some sort of peace and comfort that the world would be a better place or that they would go somewhere. But they never knew that. And if they did worship gods, and I'll say gods with a small g, those gods were pernicious. They were distant. They were remote. They required consistent sacrifice and consistent works in order to appease them. They bled their children at the altars in order for the gods to be satisfied with them. Would you like to live in a world like that? But then what happened? Jesus came. He came. He left his mark on this world forever. And this is what Revelation 20 verse 3 says. And he threw him, speaking of Satan, into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might deceive the nations any longer. You know, in Acts 14, it says that there was a time where the nations were given up over to themselves, where they could be deceived. But this text tells me that the nations cannot be deceived any longer. It doesn't mean people won't be deceived. But the truth of the light of the glorious gospel has arrived. And our job is to present that message to every single person we encounter. Amen. You see, every time we take the message of the gospel, darkness gets pushed back. Every time we tell somebody about what Jesus did for them, for them on the cross, how he died for them as they are, not as they should be, then all of a sudden the power of darkness loses its authority and it is replaced with the authority of Jesus Christ. Satan has been bound. Every time we take this statement on this wall to know Christ and to make him known seriously and we start to preach the gospel, to love the lost and to tell people about Jesus, man, we are the advancing church that Peter spoke about. We are the church that Jesus says he will build on and we will push back the gates of hell, friends. That's who we are called to be. Every time the gospel message is presented, friends, darkness scatters. But there is a caution. Verse 3 of Revelations 20, second half. After that, after Jesus has bound Satan, after he's been put into the pit, after he's been sealed, after we've disarmed him, after the success of the gospel, he must be released for a little while. Now, I know you're probably thinking to yourself, why, why does God do this to us? Like, why? Why? He's in the hole. Leave him there. Don't let him out. I mean, I think that. When I read this text, I'm like, why let him out again? I mean, he's there. We've done all the work. He's done, gone. But you know that this is not a new concept. That's why Revelation is a parallel story. Think about it. Do you remember those two witnesses I spoke about earlier? Moses and Elijah. We encounter them in Revelation chapter 11, right after we hear about the city that God is going to build. I said that city represents the church and its end time success. How the gospel message in the church is going to change people's lives. 
Well, guess what? The witnesses did exactly the same thing. They had this powerful testimony. They prophesied and people were changed. Nobody could stop them. It says that they prophesied for 1,260 days, three and a half years. They had great success. The church is going to have great success. Friends, let me tell you, the gospel in us will have success. God will achieve what he wants to achieve through his church, friends, through you and through me and through all of us collectively. Unfortunately, though, those two witnesses didn't stay alive. Because what happens? The beast from the bottomless pit is allowed to make war on them. This concept is not new. Satan is going to persecute the church. And so I cannot preach from this pulpit in good conscience a comfortable Christianity where I'm going to promise you that everything in your life is going to be amazing, that no one's ever going to persecute you, and you can just trust God for more money, more health, and more wealth, and you'll be fine. That is not what this Bible teaches me. This Bible tells me that when we preach the gospel, the red horse of persecution will follow, and there will be a time of severe persecution for the church. It's called Armageddon. All of the nations will rise up. The enemy, the beast, they all come against the church. Why? Because they want to stop the gospel. The good news is those witnesses never stayed dead. It says the breath of God came from heaven, breathed life into them, and they rose up again. You see, the church will never stay dead. We may be down, but we will never be out, friends, because our God is a consuming fire. He's the God that I serve. He's the God that I follow. He's the God that empowers everything we do. And so bring the persecution. Don't look for it. Please don't go out there and ask people to persecute you. But when it comes, say, hallelujah, Lord, I know your breath, your fire lives in me. And because of that, I can preach what you want me to preach. And if I die, which some of us might... I will be with you in heaven in glory. That brings us to the fourth vision. The millennium in heaven. Verse 4, Revelations 20. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on, its fore- on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Second truth for all of us this morning is death has no power over a believer. Because death for us is not the end. It makes sense if you think about this logically. There's a millennium on earth, right? And so the kingdom of God is advancing on this earth. The gospel message is moving forward under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is changing people's lives. Satan is being bound even more. People are getting saved. We're seeing revivals break out across the world. Everything is great, right? But remember, this letter was also written to the first century church. Do you remember the seven churches that we mentioned at the beginning of this particular Revelation series? Remember what they were going through? How they couldn't operate in in the economy. They were excluded from the economy. They were being killed. Literally, they were being stoned and beheaded. People were dying all the time. Yet there's this message that says Satan has been bound. And the truth is he has been bound. But here's the deal. For those people and for us today who give up their lives in the fulfillment of what God has called us to do in the Great Commission, we can take to heart that death for us is not the end. You see, those saints that died get to go to heaven, friends. We get to enter into eternal glory. We get to go, with him, to go be with Him and co-rule and reign with Christ in heavenly places. We are seated there now, but one day we will be there in person. You see, there's only two kingdoms in operation in this world. There is the kingdom of darkness. The Bible says in this text that those who chose the mark of the beast, in other words, not the vaccine, not the barcode, not a credit card, not a specific number plate that you've got in your car, not something that when you have your tonsils removed, they put inside you and you're dead. None of that stuff. It's none of that. Okay, The mark of the beast is the willful rejection of the king. 
That's what the mark of the beast is. Those people on this earth who hear the gospel, who receive the gospel, but reject the gospel, they've received the mark of the beast. Everybody else who receives the gospel message and believes what Jesus did for them on the cross will be saved and get to go to heaven. Isn't that amazing? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? This is before the end time judgment. This is before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? That changes my perspective of heaven a lot because a lot of us think that heaven's this way station. It's like a subway station. We get there and we're waiting. We're all waiting for something to happen. Okay, when's it going to happen, Lord? What this text tells me is we'll be in heaven with Christ, ruling and reigning with him. We will actually see the end time plan come together. I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know exactly how long it'll take. But that, friends, gets me excited. We are the overcomers of Revelation. We are the people in the seven churches who said to those who overcome, I will give you, I will give you a great robe, a crown, a a jewel. The people who have fought tooth and nail for the faith in the kingdom. And what's clear to me is those who unfortunately don't accept the gospel. Well, they don't get anything. Revelations 20 verse 5 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. In other words, if you die without Christ, you have chosen to live a dead life and you will stay dead until Jesus comes back to judge the world. Revelations 20 verse 6 Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Third truth is the reward that we receive in heaven is completely 100% up to us on this earth. There's a statement that I want to focus on, or at least something that is described here, that I believe now we can focus our attention on our hearts, on ourselves as believers. This is not for the unbeliever. This is now for those of us who believe. It says that there will be a second death. And this text seems to indicate that people that live to the fullness of what God has for them on this earth, they won't feel the pain of the second death. And so the question becomes, well, what does this all mean to us? What is the second death? What is it? If there's a first death, a second death, how does this all work? Well, I believe that the second death is what we would call the judgment seat of Christ. It's the Bema seat. Paul describes it this way in Revelations 14 verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's not talking to unbelievers, he's talking to believers. And unbelievers. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is the part that nobody likes. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Think about what's being said there. Every single person on this earth, whether you're a believer or not a believer, will be judged by Jesus. Okay? I believe the day we die, we automatically, as believers, enter into heaven. But then there's a presentation day, a day that happens later on in history where God calls up his saints and he says, come gather together. And Jesus, one by one, starts going through the list. And he says, Chris, Marco, Mark, come up here, receive your award. For some, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Right? Unfortunately, if that's to happen, it also means that we need to start taking accountability for what we do this side of eternity for our king. 
I know this is not a comfortable message, and I'm sorry if I'm making you feel a little bit stressed out here, but it stresses me out, knowing that God has an expectation of what He wants me to do in this life. Not for my salvation, friends. Salvation was bought at the cross. There is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. You can't buy it from God. You can't earn it from God. You cannot work for it. It was given to you by Jesus. But reward, friends, is another matter entirely. You see, there is a plan and a purpose that God has set before the foundation of this world for your life, for my life. Paul describes it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. So that's salvation. We save by grace. It is a gift from God. There's no other way to put it. God gives you salvation. You're going to go to heaven. But here's the deal. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Say that to yourself now. I am saved for good works. He goes on to say this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. He has a perfect destiny for us. He says, I've saved this person. This is all the stuff I have for them to achieve on this side of eternity. When we get to heaven, he's going to look at the balance sheet and he's not going to say you're saved and say, I love you. You're in heaven. You're my child. I love you regardless. But now let me open the chest where all of these rewards are and let's see what you did. And I believe in that moment, friends, some of us, will suffer with huge amounts of regret. Do you know what the pain of regret is like? Revelation 8 says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes when we get to heaven. That tells me that there is a sense that we will have lost something. Paul describes it this way. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, even though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I'm not here to put anyone on a guilt trip. I'm not here to make you feel like you have to do anything to make God love you anymore. You cannot make God love you anymore. But what I am here to do is release in you the understanding that there is an inheritance stored up in heaven for you today. And if you choose to live your life for the comforts of this world, the pleasures of this world, and you run after the things of this world, friends, let me tell you, your inheritance is at stake. On the other hand, if you choose to live your life sold out for Jesus on the ragged edge, it does not mean that you won't sin, friends, because we're all going to sin. We're all going to get it wrong. And it doesn't mean you always do this right all the time. But our heart says, Lord, I live for you. When we put Jesus Jesus at the center of our lives. And we say, Lord, I will lay down my life. I will pick up my cross. I will count the cost to follow you. I will preach the gospel because you asked me to. Friends, we are storing up a reward in heaven that can never be taken away from us. And that, friends, is eternity. We live our lives so fixated on this tiny moment of time called earth. Everything we do in our culture is designed to make us live for now. But now is not what we live for, friends. We are a kingdom people of an eternal kingdom. We are to be heavenly minded, not earthly minded. And I can do a lot better at this, friends, because I can tell you in my life I have squandered my inheritance. Just like the prodigal son. I don't know if anyone here has ever had that experience, but I've squandered the things that God has given me. But you know what? That father stands on his balcony. Not with judgment. Not with contempt. He waits for us to come home. And then what does he do? He runs to us. We serve a God that no matter how much we've squandered, He will always restore it to us. And He'll do more than we could ever hope for or think. I'm closing now. The bank can come up. Nobody's going to lock me after today. <laughs> Verse 7 of Revelation 20. Hallelujah. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Again, we're at this point. It's what we just read. He will be released at the end and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. If you want to read about that account, you can go to Ezekiel. You'll get a lot more information about Gog and Magog. It's a 
parallel there. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Sounds like the battle of Armageddon to me. Same thing. And they marched up over the broad plains of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, the church, I believe. Persecution is coming, friends. I don't believe, though, we've seen the fullness of what God wants to do through his church. Some of us might argue, well, we're in the persecution right now. Perhaps we are. I'm not sure. I do think it will get worse at some level. I do some people in this world are experiencing severe persecution that we can't even imagine. But there is going to be a time when this inevitable battle, inevitable battle will happen. But there is good news. Verse 9 of Revelation chapter 20. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Consumed all the enemies of God. Consumed everybody who set themselves up against God's people. Consumed every single person that persecuted a Christian, killed a Christian, slandered a Christian. Maybe locked them out of the economy. I don't know what they did. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Man, if that doesn't make you excited, I don't know. You see, the exterminating fire of God's holy wrath will come down and he will destroy the enemy once and for good. It reminds me of what happened to Elijah. Remember in 2 Kings chapter 1, maybe you don't remember, but they sent these soldiers, 50 men, to go and capture Elijah. And the fire of God comes down and kills them. And they send 50 more and the fire of God comes down and kills them. That's the kind of fire that's been spoken about. And when that fire falls, all that will be left, this text reminds us, is the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah, just the smoke that rises up from the ashes. That's all that will be left of all the evil in this world, friends. That's a day I'm looking forward to. And you know what's crazy about all of this? Satan knows this. Satan knows this. He's not deceiving himself, friends. He likes to deceive us, but he's not deceiving himself. He knows that his days are numbered. He knows that his time is short. That's why he's raging in this world right now because the more people he can take to hell, the better for him. You know why? Because if he can't have Jesus, nobody should. And you know what Satan also knows? He knows that every time he knocks the legs out of a believer, distracts us from our inheritance and gets us chasing after the things of this world, he's putting us in bondage, friends. He chains us with his own chains. And we might be believers, but we walk around like this heavy burden every day of our lives, friends. I want to say today's the day where we declare together that we will be a people who, like Paul, will say at the end, I have fought the good fight. I have run my race and there is stored up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord Jesus Christ will present to me on the last day. That's the kind of church we need to be, friends. And I want to ask you to stand and I want you to be bold today. In fact, don't stand. Stay seated. I want us to be bold this morning. Because if you, like me, have allowed the enemy to chain you up, to distract you from your inheritance, I want you to stand with me today and say, no more. I'm going to fight the good fight. I'm going to run the race. Stand up right now where you are. Be bold enough to say, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to play this game anymore in this world. I want to live for you and the kingdom. And if there is anybody here today who does not know who Jesus is, who has not received that free gift of grace, I want to pray for you while we sing the song. Come up to the front. Be bold enough. Come stand here with me. I will pray with you. Mark will pray with you. The elders, the deacons will be here. Nobody's going to judge you. There is no judgment in this church. All of us stand equal at the foot of the cross. Every single one of us. 
But today as a church, we declare this far and no further, Satan. We will not let you steal our inheritance. We will not let you deceive the nations anymore. And we will be used as a vessel for God to achieve his plans and purposes for the king and for the kingdom. Because every time we do, he gets bound more and more. Can I ask you to raise your hands with me? Lord, I pray for every single person in this room who's standing right now, who has said that at times in their lives, like me, we have become distracted with the things of this world, perhaps our own pain, perhaps our own despair, as Kerry said earlier, perhaps it's guilt, perhaps it's a sin, whatever it is today, Lord, we hold it up to you, Lord, and we release it to you today, Lord. We say, forgive us, Lord, for being distracted, Lord. Have mercy on us, we pray. We repent this morning in the name of Jesus, Lord. I pray for a quickening of the Holy Spirit to fall in this place as we sing this song, Lord, that you will move amongst our hearts, that you will give us, Lord, dreams and visions again of what we are capable of achieving with you, Lord, not for you, but with you, Lord. And I pray that this church would be known as the church, Lord, who stands for their king. Lord, do your work in our hearts, the work that only you can do. We're a willing vessel. Come, Holy Spirit, move amongst us and do what only you can do. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's worship our king.